Well, turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of First Peter, near the back of the Bible. Just a few books to go before it all wraps up with the revelation to the Apostle John. So we're in First Peter. We started this series through this book just a couple of weeks ago. And we hope as we journey through this book to find lasting and steady hope for followers of Jesus in a broken and hostile world, right? We are, as Peter announces at the start of this letter, we are exiles, elect exiles, chosen people of God, wandering, living as sojourners, as strangers in a world that does not welcome us, that does not accept us, that does not regard us as their own. And in fact, that's a true assessment. Jesus himself said, the world will hate you. If it's hated me, it will hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, it hates you. So that is the truth that Christians have to face and the world in which we live. Just a review of 1 Peter so far. We've only covered the first 12 verses of, uh, of the book. So the review shouldn't take too long. The first thing he tells us is that even though you're suffering as outcasts and aliens, your status as God's people is secure because he's chosen you for his own, sealed and settled by the work of all three persons of the triune God. That was all in verses 1 and 2, right? We're elect, we're his chosen people as exiles in the world, and that choice is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. That was the first two verses. We have cause for rejoicing in the midst of the hardship and the suffering and the alienation that we face because, verses 3 through 12 tell us, God is storing a heavenly inheritance for you and he's preserving you through faith to receive that gift. He is keeping a gift for you that he's got stored up in heaven and he's preserving you through faith to receive it. And God is using your suffering to purify your faith and to deepen your love for Jesus. And then finally, we saw that God has privileged us to be the recipients of his storied, long-awaited grace through the redemption of his Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that takes us through the first 12 verses. And you'll notice that all of it is just statements about things that are already true. Statements about things that God has done. And now with our eyes firmly fixed on that grace, that is the grace of salvation promised and fulfilled and the consummation that's yet to come, Peter urges Christians to live holy lives. That's where we come today. Verses 13 through 21, Peter begins to turn toward now exhortation. In light of what is true and what we've just been reminded of and celebrated, live this way. And there's a really important emphasis that I want to make here before we even get into the actual text of these exhortations, and that's this. Grace always precedes law. What God has done always comes before what is required of us. That is gospel economy. That is gospel living. For all you English nerds out there like me, you might say it like this, the indicatives 
of God's grace. That is, the things that are stated as true and fact always come before the imperatives, that is, the commands. God's grace always precedes the commands to live in a certain way. There is not a single command in verses 1 through 12. If you were to look through those first 12 verses again, you would see there is no command to Christians at all. It's just looking back and looking forward at God's grace. Look at what he's done. Look at what he is securing. This is who he's made you to be. That is all he does for the first 12 verses. And having established that, now he turns his eye toward, now here's how we ought to live in response. That is the gospel. To hold the gospel faithfully, we've got to get this order right. To flip it around and to think of law preceding grace or the imperatives, what you must do, secures the indicatives, what is true. To flip that around is to twist the gospel of grace into man-centered religion and legalism and works righteousness, right? In fact, that's what many or perhaps even most systems of belief outside of the Christian faith teach and hold, is that if you want the indicatives to be true, if you want God's favor or God's blessing or God's acceptance, well, there's some things you got to do first, right? You got to live certain ways. You got to love your neighbor. You got to be a good person, etc. Fill in the blank. Appease the gods somehow, right? It's always imperatives lead to indicatives. That's the opposite of the gospel. So I think it's important for us to see even the sequence with which Peter goes about making his case here, because he intends to exhort Christians. He intends, and the Holy Spirit intends for us to read this book and come away with commands and with, this is how I should live. This is what I should do. But he wants to make sure that that is grounded in the finished and settled grace of God in Christ. Tom Schreiner says to confuse the order here would be disastrous and the result would be works righteousness instead of seeing holiness as the result of God's grace and power as a response to the love of God in Christ. So God has chosen us for his own. He's poured his grace out upon us through Jesus Christ, making us new, making us his. And now as his people, by grace, he calls us to live in certain ways that befit the gospel, that adorn the gospel. In other words, in our obedience to his commands and growing in holiness as Christians, we are merely being who we are in Christ. We're living out this new identity that he has settled and sealed and purchased for us. So with that sort of the gospel economy in view of grace preceding law... He turns now to exhortations. And there's three main verbal commands in these verses. We'll look at verses 13 through 21 today. And there's three commands in the course of this text. Number one is to set your hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed. To set your hope. Number two is to be holy as God is holy. And number three is to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Set your hope, be holy, and conduct yourselves with fear. Those are the three exhortations that he makes, and so we'll walk through those one at a time. So, he begins with the word, therefore. And I think therefore 
summarizes verses 1 through 12. Since all these things are true, since God has chosen you for his own, and he has blessed you with this salvation, this new hope, this living hope, this inheritance that's to come, because of all of this, this is how we should live. And here's the first thing he says, that elect exiles, that's who we are, are to live in light of future grace. To live in light of future grace. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's just spoken of the revelation of Jesus Christ back at the end of verse 7, right? That the faith, <clears throat> excuse me, that faith that is tested and proved genuine will be more precious than gold and will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's speaking here of the return of Jesus, the appearing of Jesus Christ. And that's the point at which this grace that he has in mind is coming. The grace that he has in view to set our hope on is future grace that we will receive at the return of Christ. It is an end times hope. It's fulfilled at the coming of Jesus, which means that there's, there is a saving grace that is to be ours that we haven't yet experienced. Right? The implication here is that our salvation is still in process in some sense. And the New Testament speaks often of, of salvation in, in three senses. Right? You have been saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. Like th those are, are well-known passages that look at salvation in different ways. So when he says that the grace that will be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus, he's reminding us that our salvation is still being worked out. Now, it's not in question He's just made sure we know that in verses 3 through 12. This is settled. This is secured. This is sealed. But there's grace, actual saving grace of God that will come to us when Jesus returns. To so quote Tom Schreiner one more time, he says, This exhortation reminds us that God's saving work in one sense is unfinished in believers. We await grace that will only be ours when Christ returns. And presumably that grace will finish the sanctifying work so that believers can no longer sin, right? So as we live in this world, in this age, we're saved, we're settled, we're secure, but we still sin, right? We still struggle with indwelling sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil still conspire to draw us away from Christ and his gospel. And so uh, there's a day coming when we won't be able to sin anymore. What a glorious day that will be. You ever thought about that? Like, just the usually when you think about like the joy of heaven or things are coming you think about you know obviously seeing the lord and being with him or you think about loved ones that you've you know been separated from you'll be reunited with or, or whatever all the glories of the new heaven and new earth right lots of ways that 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 we think about they'll be really good do you think about the fact that when you're in heaven in glory with christ you will not sin anymore you will not be tempted to sin anymore you will no longer have an inward inclination towards sin it will be gone. It will be done away. That's so amazing. There's an old hymn that uh, I haven't sung this in a long time, but we used to sing. Uh, it's called There is a Fountain. And there's a line that says, 
something about till all the ransom church of God be saved to sin no more. Like, oh yeah, that's an outworking of salvation is that we won't sin anymore. How fantastic. So there's this grace that's coming that will complete that work of sanctification, complete the work of salvation. And that grace is coming to us when Christ appears. That is at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he tells us to set our hope fully on this future grace. Now with that grace in view, with this future final salvation in view, we are freed to help each other in the journey of sanctification. Because we know there's a day coming when we won't sin anymore, but that day ain't yet. We're still going to sin. We're still going to sin against each other in the church. As iron sharpens iron, so we have the opportunity in the church to sharpen one another. You've probably heard that proverb, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. How does iron sharpen iron? By banging into one another, right? That's how that sharpening takes place. So we sharpen each other by sinning against each other and then learning how to forgive and how to bear with and how to repent and and seek forgiveness. Because you know that we're all works in progress, we are able to show mercy to our brothers and sisters in Christ when they sin against us or they disappoint us because it's sure to happen. The awareness of this future grace should enable us to take sin seriously but to also be realistic in our expectations of ourselves and each other. This is not paradise yet, right? If we expect the church to be always easy and smooth sailing and perfect peace, we're living, we're, we're trying to grab the future grace that God, that God has secured for us and bring it into right now. It's not happening yet. It ain't gonna happen. So we need to expect that people will fail us. Even Christians, even brothers and sisters in the same church family will hurt each other. That's just part of life. But that ought to free us to be patient with each other, to be kind to each other, to bear with one another. As Peter tells us elsewhere, love covers over a multitude of sins. So this is the future grace that's in view. And he tells us to set your hope fully on that future grace. And then he tells us, thankfully, what that looks like with two other verbal words here. They're actually in the, in the Greek, they're participles. And so the ESV has translated this well by not making them commands. Some translations say, prepare your minds and be sober and set your hopes. So it sounds like three equal weight verbs in some translations. This is correct that it says preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. In other words, this is the manner in which or the way in which we are to set our hopes on this future grace. This is what it looks like. So how do we set our hope on future grace? Number one, train your minds, right? He says preparing your minds for action. The, the literal language there is girding up the loins of your mind, which sounds a little funny. Like, I don't think my mind really has loins. But the image is that, of course, in the old day, they would wear these long flowing robes. And if someone was going to run or work, they would have to gird up the robes and tuck them into a belt so that their legs would be free to move about, right? So our modern day equivalent might be something like rolling up your sleeves, right? It's like get to work, get prepared to work. But he's specifically talking about our minds. Train your minds, prepare your minds to work, 
Why, what are we training our minds to work for? I think here's one often underappreciated aspect of following Jesus. Yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, but also what? Your mind. Loving God requires the use of our minds. It requires careful thinking. It requires a reorienting of our thought life around the gospel, around the kingdom of God. If we just float through life, yay, I trusted Jesus, I'm going to go to heaven someday, and we just float, our minds are not prepared, and we're going to be blown about by every wind and wave of doctrines, the language that Paul uses in one place, right? We're not going to be ready to stand firm. We're not going to be ready to face the opposition and the resistance that may come our way uh, as exiles in this world. We need to train our minds. Paul says in Romans 12 too, uh, do not be conformed uh, to this world, but uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a similar idea. We need to get our minds saturated with the word of God so that his thinking becomes our thinking. His values begin to shape our values, right? The way that he sees the world becomes the way that we see the world. And that won't happen by accident. We got to prepare our minds for action. We have to train our minds, nor is it a quick process. It's a little by little, day by day, year by year, over time kind of a process. This is what the journey of discipleship entails. It's not only training your minds, but it is no less than training your minds. We need to fill our minds with the truth of God's word and train ourselves in this way. So train your minds is one way that we set our hope on the grace that's to come. And the second way he says is by being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. I think he uses sober here as kind of an analogy. I don't think he literally means to abstain from alcohol and to not be drunk. Of course, there are biblical prohibitions against drunkenness, so there would be no less than that. But I don't think he's literally saying here, train your minds and don't get drunk. That's not what he means. He's using that as an analogy to say those who are intoxicated by some outside substance lose their ability to be in the moment. They lose their alertness. They lose their ability to be disciplined and in control. So I think sober-minded has the sense here of, uh, of, of self-control, of being mentally alert. The word serious keeps coming back to me as I've been thinking through uh, this passage over the last week. Be serious. You know, there's so much of kind of modern-day American Christian world that is just not serious. It just seems very light and very easy and very kind of entertainment driven and very we just want people to come and feel a little better about themselves and they can go about their week and there's just there's just not a gravity to it in some in some contexts in some shapes we need to be careful that the way we see our faith in Christ our position as his children and our calling as elect exiles in this world it requires seriousness we need to take that seriously we need to be disciplined we need to be alert so we set our hope fully on this grace that's to come at the revealing of Christ by training our minds and by being serious and disciplined and mentally alert. Again, just be on guard. We're living in a war. 
And if you're not prepared to fight a battle, you're going to lose it. It's that simple. So we are to live in the light of future grace. Secondly, elect exiles are to live in light of God's holiness. Look at verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He calls us their obedient children, as obedient children, which of course implies that God is our Father, which Peter will explicitly bring out in verse 17. So as obedient children to this Father, we ought to strive for holiness. Just as an obedient child desires to please his Father, so Christians desire to live in a way that brings honor to God. That's a part of what God gives to us when he saves us, when he gives us that rebirth, causes us to be born again to a living hope that we've already talked about. There's a desire to please him as our father. And then he gives us, gives us to us in a, in a negative and a positive. Don't be like this. Do be like this. What's the negative? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, a reminder, he's writing to mostly Gentile Christians whose past would have been marked by pagan religion and rampant immorality. And these are the fleshly passions, excuse me, these fleshly passions stem from ignorance. They stem from ignorance of God's grace in Christ. You didn't know God. You didn't know the grace and of the gospel in Christ. And so you lived ignorantly. And in your ignorance, you pursued these fleshly, worldly passions and pagan religion and, and rituals. So this is the context in which he writes. So when he says to us, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, I think it calls us to be mindful of the way we used to be, right? Of life before Christ, before Jesus interrupted me and gave me new birth and saved me, what was life like? What did I think about? What was important to me? How did I spend my time? Who did I associate with? What kind of entertainments was I consuming? Those, we need to be mindful of that so that, as this negative example, we can not be conformed to that. In other words, there is a distancing of ourselves from our past sort of unsanctified lives, if you will. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. There again is that key verbal command. Be holy. And he grounds that in God's holiness. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy. And when, so we need to think about what that means. What, what does it mean that God is holy, first of all? To say that God is holy speaks not only of moral purity, which it certainly does. God is morally perfect. God is righteous and good and just, right? Those things are always true of him. God does not sin. God is not tempted to sin, and he tempts no man, James tells us in 
James chapter 1, right? So God is morally pure, but it's more than that. God is unique in the universe. God is distinct. There is no other being like him. There's nobody that's, uh, that's like God, but just a little less. So that, that's not how we are. God made us in his image, but that doesn't mean that we're just like God, but just not quite as good at it, right? No, we're, we're different. God is in his own class. There's nobody like God. He's distinct. He's set apart. So if that is the analogy that he wants to use, just as God is holy, that is God is unique, God is distinct, God is separate, so you, Christians, the church, are to be holy. He's speaking here, I think, of both moral purity and distinctness. Distinctness from the world around us. There should be differences between how we live and how the world around us lives. Sam Storms says the to live holy as God is holy requires separating ourselves from those sinful passions that characterized our lives before we came to know Christ. It means distancing ourselves from the lifestyle that used to dominate our existence. It means cutting ourselves off from whatever will desensitize us to sin or blur our spiritual vision or stir up our sinful nature. We need to actively, intentionally, ruthlessly cut away the things that will cause us to stumble, that will cause us to conform to those former passions. There's a newness of life in which we walk as his people, and that newness ought to be reflected in distinctness, in holiness. As people who belong to God on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are to live lives marked by integrity and moral purity and to be distinct from the values and behaviors of the world around us. We know we're not going to do this perfectly. We know there's room and, praise God, there's grace for our failings. But this is what we strive for as the people of God, as obedient children. We long to please our Father, and this is how it's done. So we should ask ourselves some tough questions like this. How distinct is my life from the unbelieving world around me? What of Christ and his gospel can be seen and heard by those in my life when they look at me? Or perhaps to state it negatively, is there anything in my life, a love, a relationship, a pattern, that is, dis- that is detracting from my witness to Jesus and bringing him dishonor? Brothers and sisters, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This is what he has called us to. So elect exiles are to live in the light of God's holiness. Final portion of this tells us that elect exiles should live in light of coming judgment. This is not our favorite topic. You're not likely to find lots of sermons about the judgment of God uh, littering the the pulpits of, uh, of America this morning. But nevertheless, this is a serious reality that we need to be mindful of. Let's read verses 17 through 21, and then we'll talk it through. And if you call on him as father 
who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, and there's right away an interesting tension that we feel. In the very same phrase, Peter refers to God as our father and as our judge. And we often don't think of God's fatherhood and his judgeship in the same breath. Our God is both father and judge. The one in whom we trust and rest is the one to whom we will give an account. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, that is justly, correctly, righteously, according to each one's deeds, then how should that inspire us to live? Here's the command of this this section. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What's the time of our exile? This whole earthly life before either we've died and gone to glory or Christ has returned and ushered in his kingdom. Throughout the time of your exile, conduct yourselves with fear. And right off the bat, we have a hard time with this because we struggle with the notion of the fear of God. We struggle with fearing God because we, don't, we think rightly that we shouldn't feel the need to cower in terror at God's wrath because we're hiding by faith in the work of his son, right? Verses 1 through 12 are still true. That salvation is secure. Our eternal hope is real. And so we're right to think we shouldn't be cowering in fear and wondering if God is going to smite us at any moment. That, that is not the picture that we want to have. But because that is our instinct, we tend to so soften the idea of the fear of God, that it comes out something like respect. To fear God means to respect him, right? Or or, or to honor him. Maybe you might use the word like reverence, reverence for God. And we soften the idea of the fear of God so much that warnings like this one, which are, by the way, not infrequent in the New Testament, virtually are stripped of their teeth. We go, oh, look, he's telling us to like think about the judgment and conduct ourselves with fear, blah, blah, blah. We don't really need to worry about that because we're Christians. So we'll just keep going. That's kind of how we handle passages like this because we don't know what to do with it. What do you mean? Wait, he's father and he's judge. I don't really like that part. And I think father is probably more important. So we'll just go there. We'll just hang on over here. God loves me. God's forgiven me. All's well. And so we totally ignore big chunks of the New Testament that are filled with warnings like this. Like the one who faithfully endures to the end will be given the crown of life. 
Or like Hebrews 6, the one who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and then fallen away, it's not possible for him to be renewed again. And so we go, I don't know what to do with that. And so we just put it aside. We, we just ignore it or we soften. Well, what he means by, being, by fearing God is just really respecting him. Peter intends for us here, I think, not to doubt God's grace or faithfulness, but to live in light of the reality of his impartial judgment, striving for our lives to be a fitting response to the grace he's poured out on us in the gospel. Again, we got to get grace and law in the right sequence. He's given us his grace, and because of that, he now gives us law, and we have these commands to follow. We're not trying to follow the law in such a way that we then earn the grace. So that's not what we're meant to take away from this exhortation to live in light of of the coming judgment. But we've got to take these warnings seriously. And I think we need to recognize that the New Testament even has for us different motivations for living holy lives. Sometimes the exhortation to live a holy life comes from just look at God's love and then live that out. Or think about all that God has done for you and then out of gratitude you obey him or whatever. And that's a perfectly fine and biblical motivation for holiness. But this is another biblical one that we don't really like. Think about the fact that one day you're going to stand before holy God as judge and give an account of your life. And then live in light of that reality. That doesn't mean that if I sin too many times he's going to strip away the salvation and the inheritance that he had secured for me? Absolutely not. But it does mean I'd rather stand before him on that day with a record of faithfulness generally, right? Because of God's grace in my life, look at how I I, I did remain in the faith. I persevered in the faith. Sam Storms again says here that we ought to be fearful of offending him determined to obey him and committed to loving him. I think it's a pretty good expression of that, of the sense of this living in fear. Fearful of offending him, determined to obey him, and committed to loving him. You know, unless we think that these things are so much intention that they just can't be made sense of, the truth is confidence and fear are not mutually exclusive, right? It, it's not as though they're, they contradict each other. A confident driver, for example, nevertheless has an appropriate fear of the ramifications of veering into the wrong lane or plowing through a traffic light, right? There's a, help, there's a fear of things that could go terribly wrong if I don't abide by the rules. That doesn't mean that I'm terrified to drive a car. I drive a car every day, but I still have a healthy reverence, a healthy fear of things that could go badly and the results of those things. So we can be confident as God's people, as God's children, as his elect exiles, and yet still live in the light of there's a coming judgment and I'm going to stand before God and I'd like to make sure that he's able to say, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of you said Lord, Lord, but I don't know you. Well, what will help us to fear God and keep our conduct holy? And Peter then turns to uh, kind of another angle on this in verse 18. So he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then verse 18, he's going to again express a sort of how this can happen. Knowing 
that you were ransomed from the feudal ways of your, uh, the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You were ransomed by the blood of Christ. So the work of Christ provides a motivation for holiness. As we behold and consider the redeeming work of Jesus on our behalf, we're compelled by love and gratitude to honor and obey him. Remember Jesus himself said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience is Jesus' love language. We look to Christ and the salvation he's provided and the sacrifice he made. And in light of that, we aspire to live holy lives. Now he says that we've been ransomed. So you've got to understand what ransom is. Ransom is one of the many metaphors that the New Testament uses for our salvation, for Christ's salvation of sinners. It's, it gives a picture of enslavement and buying back. So it's as though we were enslaved to the masters of sin and death. And the blood that Jesus shed for us on the cross served as the price to buy us back for himself. So when Christ died for sins, he ransomed us from our master and purchased us for himself. That's what the Bible means when it says we've been redeemed or ransomed. They're both very similar concepts. So to say that we've been ransomed is to say that Jesus has purchased us for himself. Jesus has bought us back from the master, the cruel master of sin and death. And then he tells us the ransom was not paid with perishable things like silver or gold, which is interesting right there. Because just a few verses earlier, he talked to us about the purity and preciousness and value, in earthly terms, of gold. Gold that's purified by fire was the most valuable substance known on earth at the time. So gold generally isn't regarded as perishable. It's regarded as enduring and, and lasting and, and valuable. But here he lumps silver in there with gold. And in contrast or in comparison to the blood of Jesus Christ, it's perishable. It's passing away. It's not going to last. So the most precious, most valuable substance on earth at the time, he says, is a perishable thing. You were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold. It's not like God went to Satan and gave him a bunch of money and said, will you give him back to me? No, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The precious blood of Christ. And precious here is not like we use precious, like, like a baby or a puppy. Oh, isn't he precious? That is not what precious means here. It means costly priceless, rare. The blood of Christ poured out for us is the priceless gift, the ransom that Jesus paid for our souls. Well, how does that help us in our efforts to live holy lives, in our efforts to not be conformed? As we consider the vast cost of our redemption, and the inestimable worth of the sacrifice made in our place by the Lord Jesus, it compels us to respond in an appropriate way. I think this is illustrated well <clears throat> in Victor Hugo's 1862 novel, Les Miserables, 
which is the story of a convicted thief named Jean Valjean. And Valjean escapes prison, and one of his first stops is the home of a bishop, like a pastor, named Bishop Muriel. And the bishop shows him hospitality and kindness and welcomes him in, but in the middle of the night, Valjean uh, stows a bunch of valuable things into his bag and begins to leave, and the bishop actually finds him, interrupts him, so Valjean hits him and knocks him out and then runs away. Well, the next scene, I'll admit I haven't read the book. I'm talking about the movie here. Uh, the next scene, uh, Valjean is stopped by uh, the police, and the police bring him back to the bishop, and they say, we found this guy with a bunch of your things in the bag. We just wanted to confirm these are indeed yours uh, before they let him, let, let him away to prison. And Bishop Muriel, instead of saying, yep, that's my stuff, take him away, he says, oh, absolutely, it's mine. Of course it's my stuff. I just wanted to know, Jean, why you didn't also take the candlesticks. These are the most valuable things of all. And he begins to put more things into Valjean's bag. Of course, the police are a bit dumbfounded, and they go, okay, I guess he didn't rob him after all. And so they leave. And there's Valjean face-to-face with the bishop, who has just been given this incredible, unexplainable gift of forgiveness and, and mercy and grace. And in the the Broadway uh, adaptation of this, uh, Bishop Muriel sings a song to, to Valjean that goes like this. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for God. And... Jean Valjean's story is not the same. His life is not the same. He's transformed by this act of, of grace, uh, this, this not just mercy of keeping him for punishment, but then actually giving him this bag of all these valuable things. This is grace. And he wants to live in a fitting way in light of that grace. Because I've been given this gift, I don't want to squander it. I don't want to waste it. I want to live well in light of that. And I think that's the same kind of way that looking at the ransom that Jesus Christ paid for us can in, inspire us, motivate us to live holy lives. We need to conduct ourselves with fear. We need to be holy as he who called us is holy. One of the ways that we do that is to consider that we have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. That is all of that sin and blindness and Darkness that pervaded our lives before Christ. We've been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. And now we want to live in a way that is a fitting response. We don't anticipate or expect in any way to make ourselves worthy of him. That's not the point. The point is to live in a way that is fitting as a response to his grace to us. And then Peter wraps this paragraph up uh, where he started it. God has done everything necessary in Jesus Christ to enable our faith and confidence to be in him alone. He speaks of Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. By the way, it's the same word he used of, uh, of believers up in verse 2. Foreknown, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's that same knowing. It's a relational knowing. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he's been made manifest in the last time. That is, he's been made visible. Jesus was made apparent. People could see him, right? 
through, uh, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead and said the work that Jesus accomplished in his death is sufficient for the salvation of sinners. And so he says the upshot of all that is so that your faith and hope are in God. Your faith and hope are in God. Not in politics or government. Not in wealth and security. Not in happiness and relational satisfaction. No. Your faith and hope are in God. In light of the future grace that's to be ours when Jesus appears and the holiness of God which he calls us to echo and the judgment of God which we know awaits each of us on that day, brothers and sisters, let us set our hope fully on God and his grace and let us live lives of reverence and holiness for his glory. Let me pray.